And thanks for joining the Joshua Nation's Inheritance Podcast, where we discuss God, the Bible, and God's purpose for your life. Be inspired and encouraged to engage in transforming the world around you. Sounds great. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you guys. Uh, I have looked forward uh, to our time together today. In fact, uh, uh, it was hard for me to sleep last night. I was so excited about being with you guys and I've been praying about what to share with you. Jason asked me just to share uh, and I'm going to be giving you some food for thought, uh, some things to chew on, to think about. I've been, like Jason said, I've been in the church planting world before they ever called it church planting. I remember when they started using the phrase church planting and planting a church. Prior to that, it was come start a new work. Uh, Come establish a mission point. Uh, Come help us reach people in this area. But they started using the word church plant uh, probably in the late 70s, early 80s, and I, I, I've been doing this a long, long time, and uh, I'm coaching guys right now, like Jason said, all over the world, and uh, it's an honor and a privilege. This is a, a, a Bible study that I, I want you to get something to write on. Get your Bible or your app and look up Scripture. I'm going to give you a lot of Scripture for you to chew on and to think about, and um and then get you a piece of paper or something to jot down, because I'm going to try to draw on the whiteboard a, a diagram and, and you'll, so you can capture it and, uh, and write it down. When I use the word church planting, and when I talk to church planters and uh, to pastors and leaders, I start off a lot of times with a question, who is the father of church planting? Who was the very first one uh, that uh, started church planting, church planting movement? And every time I ask that question, the overwhelming answer is the father of church planting is the Apostle Paul. Guys will say the Apostle Paul and they will, uh, you know, say, oh, he planted the church, uh, worked with Timothy, planted the church in Ephesus and and then they go down the list, the church at Corinth, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Philippi, and man, he a church planting movement, and he's the father of church planting. And that would have been my answer a few years ago, but uh, I was doing a training in Canada, and uh, I was just listening to a guy bring a devotional and the Holy Spirit really pricked my heart with that question. Who is the father, the founder of church planting? Whose idea was it first? And the answer is not the Apostle Paul. In fact, the first person to use the word church in Scripture was Jesus. He is the the father of church planting, the church was in his mind and in his heart from day one. And uh, the text uh, that I'd like for us to begin with is in Matthew 16, and it's very familiar. I'm going to read it, and you can sort of follow along 
uh, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter upon this rock. I will build my church. That's the very first time in Scripture you see the word church. And that uh, I've done research on this. And in fact, I sat down with several historians and professors. And when I came across this and I said, you know, that word church, when we take a Greek class in seminary or Bible school, uh, we hear that that word is ecclesia. Uh, and so Jesus used the word ecclesia and I will build my ecclesia. And so I, I, I probed with, in fact, I had a, uh, an ancient linguist, uh, a professor who was a linguist, and I said, tell me about that word. How did they use that word? How did they use it? Jesus used the word. The disciples knew it, and the word church or ecclesia was not a new word. It had been around a long time. And so uh, we dug deep on that, and in their day and time, when Jesus said that, he was using the word Ecclesia, which means specialized group, a group that is specialized for a purpose. And they would use that word uh, for, we would use the word team, we would use the word uh, uh, club, we would use different things for specialized groups. Uh, and uh, But he said, I'm going to build my specialized group, my Ecclesia, and Simon Peter uh, you are blessed. Blessed are you, Simon, uh, for heaven has revealed this to you. And uh, I, upon this, on your faith, on your profession of faith, uh, I'm going to build my church. And uh, he changed his name from Simon to Peter, the rock. And we know the rest of the story. And on the day of Pentecost, guess who the preacher was? Uh, it was Peter. And Jesus had foretold that, that almost three years before, when he confronts Peter, who do men say that I am? So I want us to think about Jesus, who was the founder of the church, and what, how did he look at it? If you can for a moment, what was Jesus thinking? What's going through his mind? What is Jesus' plan? What was Jesus' strategy? What was Jesus' ministry as the founder of the first church? And when we use uh, church planting terminology, we talked about you need to, you need to get your first group, you've got to gather people, and then you've got to launch your church. And we find that Jesus gathered the 12 and got his core group, he was building them, training them, teaching them core values. I mean, when you get to the Beatitudes, uh, these are going to be core values. Uh, he's building, in fact, 
he even tells them a few chapters later on how to do church discipline in Matthew 18. He is giving them all of the pieces on how to build a church. And you're going to need this, guys. And he's telling the disciples, you know, when a brother gets crossways with another brother, you've got to go and restore him to the fellowship. If he doesn't, take someone with you and with the two of you and then restore him. And if not, then take it before the body. He's giving them the manual for doing church, and he's training them. And they're... We don't have time to go. Maybe some other time we can unpack all of that. But these guys, uh, these are fishermen, and they're trying to wrap their brain around all of this. And Jesus is beginning to pull together the disciples. And uh, before long, uh, the group begins to grow. Uh, I coached a guy yesterday, and he's in the gathering stage. And uh, I'm having to sort of deprogram him. He's a good Bible study leader. And uh, he's got a Bible study in his home. But I had to deprogram him. I said, just because you're having a Bible study in your home, you don't have a church. You've got a, a few people there, but that's not a church yet. That is uh, the embryo, the beginning. I said, you're pregnant. Uh, with an idea, you're pregnant with, you're in the prenatal stage. Uh, you're, you haven't birthed a church yet. You're just getting your group together. And uh, Jesus literally did everything required. And then when the church, he had his leaders trained, he had poured into them for three years. And then the question is, did those guys get it? Did they understand what he was trying to do? And I submit to you that they got it because on Pentecost, they were ready. Jesus had them ready. And at Pentecost, Peter stands up and preaches for about 10 minutes and 3,000 people trust Christ and they baptize them all and they were ready and the church was birthed. But I want us to look at, and I want, I want you to draw a diagram. Let's talk about Jesus's ministry. Where did all of his first church, those people at Pentecost and the 12 disciples and the folks in the upper room, and where did they all come from? What did Jesus do with them? Because it really applies to us as well today. So I'm going to draw a diagram on the board, I hope you can see it. I'm going to find out how good my camera is. And I want you to, if you have a piece of paper, just draw. I want you to draw a pyramid. And I want it to have seven levels. Here in the U.S., sometimes this looks like a wedding cake. Okay, so you got seven levels. Okay, I want you to draw seven levels, and I want us to think about the different levels of people, numbers of people. People could, this is really what I would call a discipleship pyramid. Jesus had different levels of commitment. These are levels of commitment. 
for instance, and I'm going to give you the verses. I'm going to give you verses for every level, okay? And maybe to sort of draw it out here. For instance, in, in uh, Matthew 14, we have where Jesus fed the 5,000. Matthew 14 and verse 21, it says he fed 5,000, the five loaves and two fishes. The little boy with the five loaves and two fishes. That's in Matthew 14. The next chapter, Matthew 15, he fed 4,000, and there were seven fish that he used. And by the way, in Matthew 14, 21, it says he fed 5,000 men. Then you have also the women and the children. So it could have easily been 10,000. I mean, who knows how many it was, but 5,000 men. That's a big crowd. And, uh, and they, were, they were following him. They were listening to his teaching. Many of them were curious. They wanted to see another miracle. Uh, and they came for different reasons. Uh, in fact, it, the, the, when I talk about that group, I call them the free lunch bunch. They like to come for the free food, for the show, for the excitement. Maybe Jesus will turn some more water into wine. Uh, maybe a heal a cripple man. Maybe we'll get to see a blind man see. Uh, maybe we'll see someone deliver the, uh, from demons. Uh, you know, man, let's just follow Jesus. And uh, on that particular day was lunchtime, and you know the story of the little boy with five loaves and two fishes. But the question is, three years later, when Jesus is crucified, where were they? Where was that bunch of people? If they'd have been there at the crucifixion, if there'd have been 5,000 men who had been identified with Christ and they stood for Christ, and there were 5,000 men present when Jesus was being crucified, and when Pilate walked out with there at the crucifixion in John 17, and there's a choice between Jesus and Barabbas, who should I release? 5,000 men, men hollering, Jesus, Jesus. The, the story would have been different. But they were amazingly absent at the crucifixion. And, and uh, they, their, their commitment level, they were committed for a free meal. They were committed for uh, um, seeing some miracles. They were okay with listening to some teachings, but their commitment level was very shallow. Now, out of all of the thousands of people Jesus touched, we know that the, the, the next level here, and it's in 1 Corinthians, out of all of those thousands, there were 500. 500, and that, and that is in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, out of all of the thousands of people that Jesus touched, there were 500 the Apostle Paul says, and after his resurrection, 
After his resurrection, there were, and he has a whole list. There was, he says, there was Cephas, and there was James and John, and then there were oh, there were five hundred gathered, and they they saw Jesus in his resurrected body. Okay, so out of all of those thousands, there were at least five hundred that hung around after the crucifixion. And who saw Jesus in his resurrected body? So out of all the thousands, there were 500 who saw him in his resurrected body. Out of the 500, there were 120 that were committed enough. They took off a week's work. (laughs) They went to the upper room (laughs) and they waited. They were obedient. Jesus told the disciples, uh, there at the ascension, you know the story in Acts chapter 1. Uh, the, uh, he's standing there, and he ascends into heaven. And the last instruction Jesus gave before he lifted off, uh, he said, uh, uh, go to Jerusalem, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. Acts 1.8. And then it says, Jesus lifted off, went into heaven, and the, and the angel said, Why stand ye gazing? The same Son of Man who is going to heaven shall come again in like manner and receive you unto himself. His last instruction was to us to go and make disciples. And so they left and went to Jerusalem. They found a room, we call it the upper room, and there were 120. And those and that 120, we know on the day of Pentecost, we have the 120. They had been there for a week. And so there were 120 that were committed, ran the risk of being arrested, uh, ran the risk of the Roman soldiers or the, the soldiers for the chief priest, Caiaphas. It was, a, it was a dangerous kind of situation to be in the upper room with 120 other believers, followers of Christ. They, they, it was a dangerous moment. But there were 120 committed. Out of all of those thousands, there were 120 in the upper room. Also, out of 120, there were about, of all of the followers of Christ, In Luke 10, we find there are 70, 70 that he trusted to take the gospel to surrounding villages. You know that Luke chapter 10, and this is where he talks about sending out laborers into the harvest. And remember, they all went out at two by two in pairs, and uh, they came back, and he taught them how to find a person of peace. And uh, and in Luke 10, they came back and they marveled that even the demons were subject to their name. And so there were 70 that he trusted the mission to. So out of all the thousands, there were 70. Out of the 70, that's by the way, that's Luke chapter 10. The 120 is in Acts. Acts 1.15, if you're using the verses. Acts 1.15. So you had 5,500, 120, the 70. Out of the 70, you have the 12 disciples. Their commitment level, the 12, really there was 11 that were committed. One of them was Judas. 
But these 12 took three years of their life uh, and followed Jesus. Well, two of them, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they left the fishing boats and they said, I, I want to meet Zebedee, by the way, when I get to heaven. <laughs> Zebedee let his uh, two sons, who were part of his work crew with all of his boats, he let them follow Jesus. And uh, James and John did that, and they were committed, and they, they left their livelihood and followed Jesus. And uh, there was com a commitment level out of the 12. And uh, then out of the 12, you have that inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. And Peter, James, and John, we found them, for instance, in Matthew 17. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they were committed enough that Jesus says, I'm going to pour into these three uh, at a different level. They were the inner, inner circle. Uh, these guys were going to be the leaders of the future church. Peter was one of them. And so Peter, James, and John, uh, you know, you, you'd look at that tree. Peter was going to preach at Pentecost, that church in Jerusalem. James was going to be a pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, John the Beloved, he's going to be the one that's standing by him at the cross. And so you come up to the top one. The one most committed out of those was John the Beloved. And we find in uh, John chapter uh, 18, verse 26, out of the three, they had good commitment. Remember what happened, though. At the crucifixion, Peter denies him three times. James follows afar off in the crowd. Just watch it. The only one who stood by the cross until Jesus breathed his last breath was the one, was John the Beloved. And you remember the story. There at the crucifixion, he's standing there, and he entrusts his mother to John and said, uh, behold, uh, Mary, behold your son, John, John, your mother. Hey, and he, he, he basically gave the responsibility to John to take care of his mother there while he was hanging on the cross. And he could trust John. Most scholars believe that John the Beloved, that one, was probably the youngest of the 12. Um, many believe he was probably 19 or 20 when he met Jesus. He was a young guy. And uh, in terms of church history, uh, we really believe that all of the others, uh, the, the 12, died martyrs' deaths. The only one who died a natural death in his 80s was John on the Isle of Patmos when he had, after he'd written the book of Revelation. And, but as you look at all of those people, if, if you were to ask me, who was the most committed disciple? I, I would say John. They, they are, the Roman soldiers are right there. They are crucifying Jesus and John is standing right there and they could have easily crucified him if they'd have wanted to. He was not ashamed of Christ. He was not denying Christ. He was not hiding in the crowd and following afar off like James. The other disciples had scattered. John was faithful to the end. Now, why do I, 
I, I, I draw that diagram. This was Jesus's ministry. And, that, and it shows different levels of commitment. In your ministry, you've got different levels of commitment in your leadership, in the people you minister to. Some of you on this call, you have a number of church planters, house church planters, you've got your own network. Uh, but I would ask, where do those in your network, where do they fit? I was training a church planter yesterday. And he was just, we were talking and, and I was telling him, one of your challenges is, and, and, and this is something that we have to do as a leader you have to learn how to call forth commitment. How to help people get more committed. How to pull it out of a person. I mean, you look, look at what Jesus did on, that, one, on that, that very first time with the disciples. Okay, guys, we're going to talk here a minute. Who do people say that I am? Who do you think I am? Who do you believe that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're Jeremiah. And, uh, no, no, no. Who do you say, Peter, who do you say that I am? And at that moment, Jesus reaches in and calls forth commitment. Thou art, he makes him state his true belief. And commitment swells up inside of Peter. Here's this fisherman. And he said, who do you say that? He calls him out. And he makes Peter speak up, and he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Jesus literally pulled that out of him. He had no idea that he was going to be at Pentecost preaching. But that was a big step of commitment for him to say, I believe that he's the first one who said, I believe you're the Son of God. So the question we have is leaders is how do we help people move up and, and grow in their commitment? And a question for us, where are you on the pyramid yourself? There are times that I, I know for certain because my life has been in danger and I know the very first time when I was a senior in high school in the mountain, the Sierra Mountains with the Huicholito Indians, a group of bandits, in Spanish they call them banditos, uh, a, a, a gang showed up and they came to kill us. And, and uh, I remember our, my leader said, man, y'all better get prayed up. And so I went uh, out behind the uh, a, a, a tree, and I just said, okay, Lord, if this means I'm going to die, I'm ready. It's been worth it. Lord, I've had the privilege of seeing 60 Huicholito uh, Indians trust Christ, and if it means I'm going to die because I came to share Christ with them, it's been worth it, and Lord, if I take a bullet today and die, I know that there's times in my life where I've been like John the Beloved. 
But I'm sorry to say there have been a number of times I've got a Simon Peter streak inside of me. There's a Simon Peter streak, and uh, sometimes I've not been ready to die. I was not as close to him, or I counted the cost and let someone else do it. And, uh, and I was one of the three. So at different stages, different times in life, sometimes we, we're not as committed as we uh, would like to be. So I raised the question, where are you? And I asked myself the same question, where am I today on this pyramid? And, uh, you know, I was talking to Jason Resendi earlier, and we're talking about going up to Amazon uh, in the jungle, dangerous place, uh, plus you got the, all the COVID stuff and all that. And I'm asking myself this question. This Bible study is for me. I have to constantly say, how committed? Well, how, how much am I? What does the Lord say? If the Lord tells me to go to Brazil in the Amazon and, you know, and even run the risk of, like I said, COVID and other things, am I willing for the cause of Christ to do it? And the answer is yes. I need a word from him, and I will do it out of obedience. I'm not, I'm not saying it uh, lightly. I'm not saying that, man, Sam, you're crazy. You shouldn't be done down, whatever. I'm, I need a word from the Lord because it's an obedience issue. It's an obedience issue. What happened? Why did Peter deny Christ? Why did he not step up like John the Beloved? Because of fear. Fear. And do you know? I believe in our country, here in the U.S., right now, there is a principality. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power and spiritual wickedness and high places. That word principality is a jurisdictional term, a territorial spirit. And I believe over our country right now, there has settled a demonic kind of spirit of fear. Just like it was in the day in Rome with Simon Peter, there, there is a spirit of fear that is hovering literally over our world. And that demonic force has got a lot of power and he's really messing with a lot of people, a spirit of fear, okay? But we cannot... Like John the Beloved, he rose above that and said, I'm not going to live in fear. I'm going to stand here at the cross for my Savior. And he did it out of his love, out of his obedience, and he was not ashamed of the gospel. So this is something we live with, but how do we help others? How do you call forth commitment? For instance, let's take another person in Scripture. I just did a Bible study this week in my own personal time on Nicodemus, John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus is fearful. He comes to Jesus at night. He doesn't want people to see him going to find Jesus. He's a, he's a Jewish leader, but he's curious. And there's something drawing him to Jesus. 
And in John chapter 3, very, the, one of the most famous passages of Scripture, he comes and, when, and he asks Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And he took, a, he took I, I believe, that night, Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, placed his faith in Christ. But he was one of those guys, you know, he's probably in here in some other places. But then at the cross, though, he steps out of the crowd and he helps prepare Jesus' body and bury Jesus in the Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Wow. We only see him there two times in John, John 3, but we find him there at the crucifixion in John, and he shows up again, and he's committed. He risked his life to identify himself with Jesus. Why? Wow, his commitment level grew in there somewhere. You know, I start looking, you know, Zacchaeus, who trusted Christ. He may have been in that crowd of 5,000 just looking for a miracle. We know he was in one large group and climbed a tree. How many other times had he listened to Jesus teach? But commitment is something that we grow in. And if we had time today, each one of you would have a testimony of how you grew in Christ. We remember we trusted Christ. And, you know, we, you know, there are a lot of people, for instance, who, I have trusted Christ at a Louis Palau crusade, thousands. Billy Graham crusade, thousands. But once they trust Christ, we've got to help them grow and, and, and get plugged into a church and develop. And you grow and grow. And, and out of in, in a church setting, right now, I'm helping church planters. How do you identify the committed people? How do you know who's going to make a good elder in your church? How do you know who you can count on? How do you know who's going to be trustworthy? How do you identify any believer if he can keep a confidence and be trusted? How can you know if a guy has his heart right? And Well, you're looking. Hey, is he giving? Is he tithing? Uh, or, or is he hanging on to everything? You know, you, you have to put the things in place so you can gauge, measure commitment. Jesus did that. And he helped his disciples get more and more committed. And he was able to say, Peter, in fact, the last chapter in John, after Jesus is resurrected, he says, Peter, remember what he told him? Do Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. And you know the, the study there on the words for love. And he says, then feed my sheep. Now, he told him that at the end of John. And just 40 days later or less, he is now overseeing 3,000 new believers. That's a lot of sheep. And, the, and, the, and the, uh, the James and John, you got the 12, and they're the ones who baptized the 3,000. Uh, and, man, you just stop and think about how Jesus took them from new believers all the way through. And there at Passover, you say, well, 
how, how did they know how to handle 3,000 people? I believe they looked at each other. Hey, guys, Jesus taught us how to handle the crowd. We fed 5,000. Surely we can baptize 3,000. Jesus got them ready, and he called forth commitment. So think about your network. Think about your churches. Think about your pastors. Think about your own fellowship that you're a part of, your own church. What does it look like? You're going to have a whole lot that are fringe. They're out here like the free lunch bunch. Years ago, I was on staff of a large mega church and had thousands. And uh, I remember we had a big celebration, got a huge gymnasium, had thousands and had as famous speakers come in and famous singers and had thousands, big crusade kind of thing. Where were they next Sunday, the next week? They were the, the free bunch buns. We had a big barbecue. We had a big meal. They came. Big experience. But And then in the church, we own, in that huge mega church, we only had about 500 that we could really count on to work with the children, to lead small groups, to help with the ministry. There were about 500 out of that huge, big event. And out of that 500, we had 120 key leaders over ministries. And out of that, then you had your deacons. And, your, and a pastor is blessed if he's got a good leaders who will come along with him and who will stand with him. And I, the pastor had about three men that, that would drop whatever they were doing. They would fast. They would pray. Pastor, we're there. There were about, out of all of those thousands, there were about three men that stood by the pastor. And I can tell you who the, the one was when the pastor had a real hard time. He's the one that stood up and told everybody else, hey, I'm going to stand by my pastor. It really hasn't changed all that much. Our ministry looks a lot like Jesus's. Now, in my heart, I wish I could take this true man and turn it upside down. And I wish we had 5,000 who were ready to die for Christ. That would be awesome. But Jesus struggled with the same people problems that we deal with. And we've got to learn how to call forth commitment out of people like Peter. That We watched Jesus develop Simon Peter to help him get ready for Pentecost. Thank you for joining Joshua Nations on this episode of the Inheritance Podcast. For more information about the ministry of Joshua Nations, please go to www.joshuanations.org. To join our prayer movement, please go to prayer.joshuanations.org. We hope you will join us for the next episode of the Joshua Nations Inheritance Podcast. May God bless you. Thank you.